Hay Crossings podcast community. This teaching is called Wabi Sabi and is the fourth teaching in our culture making series. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on May 15th, 2022. Thanks for listening. So at the risk of being cryptic, um, I want to acknowledge that behind me there is a photograph in a triptych. Um, I'm not going to be talking about this photograph in any way, but you will see how this fits in in some way if you understand sort of what we end up talking about. So this is your call to just pay attention to the the kind of concepts that we're going to be talking about this morning so that this all comes together. Uh, For the last three weeks, uh, we've been exploring what it means to be people of faith uh, that see ourselves as makers and artists. And we've seen that this calling or this vocation uh, to make is something that is intimately human. It's part of our divine mandate going back to Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Uh, we've seen that making is something that we do in community. It's a, it's a part of an ecosystem of makers for future generations to come. And last week we talked about this invitation to be makers as an act of faith in and of itself, as an expression of some kind of knowledge about God something that involves us using our hands, our intuitions, and the wonder of a child. And in some sense, by putting an emphasis on making, what we're trying to do is to go beyond a posture that seems really so prevalent in our culture, particularly maybe even in Christian culture, which is so focused on fixing things rather than making new things. We've been using this artist and theologian, Makoto Fujimura, uh, a lot over the course of this series, and and he calls this bent towards fixing rather than making plumbing theology. He says that if you pay attention to the rhetoric and the words of many Christians and sermons, we tend to depict God as one who fixes things. Things are broken, they're in need of mending, and God's the one that just kind of comes and either does this God's self or asks us to turn the wrenches on all the things that are broken in the world. He defines the problem this way in his book, Art and Faith. He says, it's as if to say we are fixed by the gospel or the good news, and we can now live out our identity as new creation in Christ, but we do not know what purpose and what world we are being prepared for. It's as if we are provided with the tools to fix the pipes of injustice and righteousness, but we have no word on why the pipes are there in the first place. God does not just mend, repair, and restore, he says. God renews and generates, transcending our expectations of even what we desire beyond what we dare to ask or imagine. What I understand him to be saying in all of this is that while we should be concerned about fighting social injustices or perhaps emphasizing strong marriages or parenting well and healthy, being about mending broken relationships, having healthy lifestyles, it's not our primary job to just fix things that are broken. Though our making uh, should call attention to the things that are less than perfect, the broken pipes and their less than functional utility, we should also consider making things with the hope that God uses our making 
as an act of restoration and renewal for something completely different, something new. If this is true, I think that it means we have to think a little bit differently about what we do as people of faith. Maybe our job as makers isn't just to fix what's broken, but to create new things as an invitation for others into something else. Maybe our job as makers isn't to obliterate darkness and brokenness, but to cast a little light on it and limit its boundaries. For instance, I I can't be the only person in this room who has wondered at some point in the last two months what in the world we're supposed to do with the terrible atrocities being committed in Ukraine. What does my faith have to say, if anything, about that darkness? Where is God in the broken pipes of that system? And even if I could try to fix it, even if I had the tools, how is it possible for new creation to break out in that particular hell on earth? I'm not sure if there's an answer to this question. Or if there is, I'm probably not the one to provide it. The closest thing that I think we might get to is through the poetry of the Ukrainian people. Um, Particularly the work of this one poet named Serhei Zidane. So Zidane had been a poet and an activist uh, long before the current war with Russia. He he wrote a bunch of things in 2014 after the Crimea uh, invasion. But he has this way of capturing the darkness and naming it and shedding perhaps just a little bit of light on it. And I think there's something about the way that he writes that limits its power because he has the courage to name and describe it. I want to read uh, this one poem, uh, Where Are You Coming From? And it was written well before the events of the last two months, but the fact that its words resonate with the things that are happening right now just shows how broken the pipes are in the world. Uh, but, But the words that he writes speak to something more than just fixing it, but describing what's happening in these dark days in Ukraine. He says, Where are you coming from, dark caravan, you flock of birds? We once lived in a city that no longer exists. We have come here tired and ready to submit. Chaplain, tell your people there's no one left to kill. Our city was built of stone and steel. Now we are each left holding only one bag, a suitcase filled with ashes gathered under fire. Now we smell the burning even in our dreams. The women of our city were sound as a bell and carefree. At night, their fingers reached down into the void. The city springs ran deep, deep as a well. The churches were grand. We burned them ourselves. Gravestones will tell our stories best. Chaplain, can you just talk to us? Brace us with your love. Confession is part of your job. Tell us, why did they burn our city down? Tell us they did not mean to do it. Tell us the guilty will be punished, chaplain. Tell us anything that's not in the news. 
Well, I can only tell you about the losses. Surely a final reckoning awaits the guilty, but it awaits the innocent as well, and even those who had nothing to do with this. How did you end up with these dark, fleeing masses? You should have read the prophets more carefully. You should have avoided the road that leads to hell. The people cannot bear to see faith in action. Remember what the prophets said about pain and long-suffering, about the birds that fall from the sky like stones on a city. That's when the losses really start. Where they end, you can't even imagine. How are we different as consonants from vowels? Everyone can accept a death that's not their own. In this life, no one avoids the final reckoning. That's what I tell people when there's nothing left to say. I don't know anything about inevitable penance. I don't know where and how you should live. I can only speak of what's inside us. You must realize how unlucky we've all been. There's no fixing that. But there's something about the way Zadon describes this, this response, this naming of the darkness that somehow, at least to me, limits it while facing it. And I think it's very similar as I read through this poem, as I read other things that he's written, to a kind of making that's found in other cultures, but particularly in the Bible, this kind of making that we call lament. And I think it would be a mistake for us to spend six weeks about making and only focus on the kinds of making that we see as describing the beautiful or the kind of making that makes us feel good that most of us assume are inherently beautiful, but excluding or overlooking the parts of our world that are broken. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, there's a whole book devoted to this kind of making. It's called the Book of Lamentations. And the Book of Lamentations begins with this word, Echa. Echa is the actual name of the book in Hebrew. And this word, Echa, is really not a word that's even translatable. Maybe we could call it an exclamation, something like, how is this possible? How could this be? But really, it's just a groan beyond definition. There's a book in the Bible that begins this way, and yet it's not a book that we typically go to or read very much. So the book of Lamentations is five chapters of mourning and crying and lamenting the specific event that happened when Jerusalem fell in 586 when the Babylonian armies took the city and burned the temple. This is kind of how the book begins. It says, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. Sounds like something Zidane could have written a few weeks ago. How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations. Going on later on in the first chapter, he says, This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. My children are destitute because the enemy has prevailed. The book goes on like this for four more chapters, mostly grieving loss. 
But there's something about the fact to me that these Israelites who felt so far from God, so unprotected, so vulnerable and weak, still felt the need to make literature that named all of those realities and chose to bring their complaints and hopes to God. What's even more compelling about the book to me is, is how the ancient Israelite scribes arranged all of this. Uh, the book, like I said, is five chapters. It's made up of five acrostic poems. If you don't know what acrostic is, it's, it's kind of poem where each line forms a word or words. And in the case of Lamentations, each line begins with the corresponding letter of the alphabet. So in the Hebrew language, there are 22 letters. You can see the Aleph, the Beit, the Gimel, all of these over here, those are all alphabetical going down, and then the last two, the Shin and the Tav, are there at the bottom. So that would be the Hebrew alphabet. And each line of each chapter begins with one of those letters. So each word, as you can see, is represented there. But the third chapter is a triple acrostic, meaning it has 66 verses. Each line represented three times for one letter of the alphabet. And this chapter the longest chapter in the book is the only one that really mentions any form of hope, which is great. But then the next chapter returns back to the single acrostic, mostly lament. And then on top of all of that, the fifth chapter ends the book in a broken acrostic meaning that every line begins with a corresponding letter of the alphabet, but it's all out of order. Chaos has returned to the end of the book. And what I find deeply meaningful about this is that the poets of Israel took time to name their pain, to bring it before God, to make something out of the chaos and the disorder, but they didn't whitewash it. Yes, they ordered the chaos by arranging everything according to their alphabet, giving it some sense of order. Yes, the longest chapter smack dab in the middle of the book is the one that's hopeful. But it's still a lament. It's still about the brokenness. It's still an acknowledgement of the disorder. And I don't want to speak for everyone here, but my experience of faith has been, at least what I can remember of it, that we're pretty bad with dealing with that tension. That we, we don't really want to come to a Sunday morning gathering or spend a lot of time reading about all the broken things, singing songs about how terrible everything is right now. At one point a few years ago, there was research uh, that came out that only 5% of the songs sung at Sunday church gatherings would qualify as a lament or the naming of the brokenness of creation primarily. 5% of the songs. But of the poetry that's in the Bible, nearly 40% of the poetry and songs that are in the Bible would be categorized as lament, almost half. So why are we so unbiblical? Sometimes in order to relearn or unlearn something, I find it helpful to turn to an idea or concept or practice that's completely different from anything I've ever known before, something that I have to completely learn as a novice. And for me, uh, that concept has been this Japanese term called wabe-sabe. Um, 
if you've been paying attention for the last four weeks, we've had something like a word of the week, and this is our PBS word of the week, Wabe Sabe. And I want to be careful about how I introduce this and how we introduce anything that comes from another culture because I don't want this to be seen as cultural appropriation or some watering down of some ancient deep tradition for my own cheap 20-minute talk. But very simply, I introduce this concept because this is something that teaches me a very different way of looking at the world. One that I think we would do well to consider when it comes to faith. So from what I understand from some of the stuff that I've read, wabe-sabe is really an elusive term. It's, it's almost impossible to nail down or to describe into, in words or phrases, which alone makes it really interesting to me as a metaphor for faith. Because wabe-sabe doesn't actually seem to be about an idea or a word or a definition. It's actually about a way of living. These two words that make up wabe-sabe roughly break down to this. Sabe meaning chill, lean, withered, and wabe meaning the misery of living away from society. But the combination of these two terms together brings something completely different. It it means essentially something like this. A way of life, a spiritual path, discovered in our materiality, in our flesh and in our bones and in nature. It's a combination of space and time that is both inward and subjective, but also expressed outwardly through the way things are. It's an appreciation of the rustic, the ugly, the imperfect, as somehow being beautiful and worthy of attention. The things that you would think to look past or beyond or overlook, becoming the thing of focus. A rusty park bench, chipping paint, a crack in the wall, a flower growing through the sidewalk. Some of the values uh, described by uh, Leonard Koren in his book, Wabe Sabe, for artists, designers, poets, and philosophers, uh, he, he says that w- you could boil it down to some of these axioms. Great. <laughs> Greatness exists in the inconspicuous and the overlooked. Beauty can be coaxed out of ugliness. Wabe Sabe is about the appreciation for cosmic order and the inevitable. It's about a focus on the intrinsic and natural rather than the fake material hierarchies that we come up with. Wabe Sabe, he says, provides an integrated approach to the ultimate nature of existence, sacred knowledge, emotional well-being, behavior, and the look and feel of things. I would like to have a faith that feels more like wabe-sabe. The more I learn about this way of being in the world or, or making things or appreciating things, the more I think about how our faith really should be something like this. What if the answer to our grief and our doubt, the losses of some of our spiritual innocence, isn't found in a book or a sermon or a teaching but is instead found in some form of lament-making or of wabe-sabe observance? What if we aren't supposed to get rid of the darkness, but name it? 
What if our job isn't to fix the world or make it perfect or even perfect ourselves, but is instead an acknowledgement of the way things are, even if we believe they aren't the way we want them to be or the way we think they were intended to be? What could we make that would coax beauty out of ugliness? What do we need to grieve or accept that might bring healing even if it feels like defeat? I've been having a lot of conversations with some of you throughout this series um, about making, about different forms of art or culture that teach you things about faith or about yourself or about the world. And one of those conversations um, that I had was with Jeff Wishcamper, who's part of our community. And, and he and I talked about photography and how photography does something like this. It teaches us something about this wabe-sabe form of living, uh, this kind of culture that makes us notice the things that are obscured or focus on things that we tend to push to the background. And so I want to share a bit of that conversation that we had. My name is Jeff Wishcamper, and um, I occasionally take pictures. So I uh, had a camera when I was in high school, but I didn't really get into photography until I was in college. It was back in a time when we still had this stuff called film, where you know you it would take you know, 24 or 36 pictures, and you couldn't see what they were immediately, and so you would have to wait and send them off and get them back. And so there was, it, it was interesting in that there was always sort of this process of discovery and anticipation in the act of creation where you would take something and then it wouldn't be revealed until later on. You wouldn't know whether you got the shot. One of the things that I really enjoy about photography is that it gives us or invites us into a different way of looking at the world. I think that photography really gives us, both as, as photographers and as an audience, a way of looking at, at different things and different uh, aspects of the world in ways that we don't often. Um... So I want to invite Rachel Hudson up. She's going to share some stuff about, um, uh, about what it's meant for her personally to, to have this approach and change uh, of Wabe Sabe faith. Um, I was a teacher. I'm used to this kind of imperfection always happening. So uh, typically I'm upstairs with our kiddos. And um, so this will be a different experience for me this morning to talk without interruptions about your favorite superheroes and different things. But feel free to shout it out if you want. We'll roll with it. Um, but something uh, that I really love about children um, is that when they are hurt or they are sad, there is just absolutely no shame in reaching out for help. Um, if children have learned this healthy attachment with their caregivers, then they've learned how to trust. And so they've learned that when things are like broken or they feel really broken in the moment, they all, all they have to do is just stretch out for help with the person uh, that's closest to them. And they don't have to try to fix things by themselves. Um, they're just free to acknowledge that they're dependent. And so when I think about that, that's such a great visual for me, and I hope it is for you, about how I think lament is supposed to function. Um, lament is this deep longing in us that should propel us to stretch for our creator. And it, 
and it hopefully should move us from this buckling down, this tightening our grip, to just opening up our hands and relinquishing control, um, acknowledging that we really desperately need help and hope. And I think for many of us, this concept of lament, this pain, and this longing, um, the acknowledgement of all of these things that are broken and imperfect, uh, this holy complaint, is not really a stretch for us sometimes. I, I know in myself, I'm really good at acknowledging things are not the way that they're supposed to be, how broken things are. And yet, I've learned in that acknowledgement about all the brokenness around me that what I do is I just obsessively clean. So my counters are really spotless, but my life is just like falling apart. And what I'm doing is I'm hustling to try to fix things. Um, and this isn't really a righteous act. It's not a selfless act. Um, this is not a true act of lament. Um, I'm doing these things um, out of fear and out of scarcity because I've realized how quickly things can be taken out of my control and how quickly things can be lost. And so I think in my own life, I've just hustled to hold on to it. And yet that hustle is just so unsustainable and defeating. Lament was meant for us to acknowledge how we feel, to make time to honor those emotions, but then we were made to pour out and release those so that we can hopefully be transformed. Lament was designed to be this posture to help us release this tension that we have and to trust God even in the midst of sorrow and in pain in order to make us whole again. And so the questions that Caleb's kind of already alluded to, but I want to put back up here that we want to wrestle with today um, or how can lament, uh, how can lament lead to beauty and wholehearted living? And how can we find a way to bear witness to pain uh, without surrendering our right to live fully? So how do we live in this tension of acting justly and still loving mercy? And how do we see the darkness, but we also maintain being salt and light? And how do we, like, continue to grapple with this impermanence of life and still see the beauty in it? And there's this book by Susan Cain called um, Bittersweet, How so Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. Uh, she's also the author that wrote Quiet. Ever read that book? And in this book, she writes, uh, when I first went on this quest to explore bittersweetness, and maybe it's worth kind of defining what that is, it's this recognition that light and dark, and joy, and sorrow are always going to coexist. That's what life is. And it's an awareness of this passing of time, an awareness of the impermanence of life. But it's also kind of a piercing joy at how incredible, incredibly gorgeous and beautiful life is. And I've come to believe through this quest that I went on to understand the nature of bittersweetness is that we are creatures who are born to transform pain into beauty. And that is something that we have the ability to do. It's not that pain equals art. It's that creativity has the power to look pain in the eye and decide to turn it into something better. Um, in October of 2020, um, I experienced this real liminal moment. Um, 
uh, I was at the beach with my uh, family after just an incredibly stressful season where I was just grasping because I was losing everything and everyone that I built some stability and security around. And so this trip <laughs> was supposed to be calming and, um, you know, life never works out that way. So that's what it was supposed to be after this year of emergencies and tragedies. And while there, I received a phone call that my best friend had died suddenly. And uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced unexpected loss like that, which I know many of you have, but you just get wrecked with grief. You just feel sick. And I remember standing out in the ocean, and I'm just sobbing. I know people were probably really concerned <laughs> about me. Um, but the waves are just like hitting me, and my, I'm holding my son, and his head is on my chest. And in that moment, I was just acutely aware of the light reflecting on the waves. And I distinctly remember that moment because it was as if God was saying, Rachel, I need you to just let go. Just open up your hands. Stop all this resisting and fighting. All of these losses, it doesn't help. And I felt like God was inviting me to do the very last thing I wanted to do, which was to accept and embrace the situation for what it was. I had to feel it because that's the only way through it sometimes. And I know to be human is to be sadness. All of us know this. Owning our sadness is courageous, and it's actually the necessary step we all have to take to help connect us to one another and also to God. In our saddest moments, we all have this deep desire you just want someone to hold you. You just want someone to connect to you that also has felt that ache or that loss. And when we're children and we're learning to walk, uh, a lot of times we want to know if we let go of our parent or caregiver or adult's hand, someone's still going to be there to catch us. But, and that desire of deep belonging continues to persist throughout life. And it's fear that keeps us from releasing that grip and prevents us from experiencing that deep connection that we actually desire. And yet, there's so much healing that's accessible to us when we put down all illusions of perfection and positivity. And we can start to not just grace, but we actually start to experience it. And I believe that lament creates this current of grace underneath the surface of things. And it helps us to admit our lack and at the same time acknowledge God's great abundance. There's a book called Wholehearted Faith. Rachel Held Evans wrote it. And in this she says, um, to live and love fully, to embrace humans' vulnerability rather than exploit it. And to try to make sense of our place in this fragile yet beautiful world. To seek to understand our role in proclaiming God's love and justice. This has been the work of generations. It's this quest that creates our greatest works of art and our most profound moments of gentle tenderness. It's the promise that calls us to greet every sunrise and surrender to every sunset. It's the best hope of our oldest prayer, both on the days when I believe as well as on the days when I don't. Um, in 2010, there's a Pixar director, Pete Docter, he wrote Up 
and Monsters, Inc. If you have young children, you're familiar with that. And he wanted to make this um, animated film about emotions. And so he chose this 11-year-old girl, Riley, and he wanted the emotions to be these lovable characters. And so if you're familiar with Inside Out, I don't know if you've watched that or not. Um, but originally, these emotions were supposed to show um, how the control center of her brain worked. And they're shaping her memories and her daily life. And originally, he thought fear and joy would be the two main characters. But as he started to think about that, he realized the whole movie was going to flop because the narrative arc needed fear to teach Joy a lesson, but fear had nothing to teach her. And so he started this downward spiral projecting this whole movie's gonna flop, everything I've created, and then my career's gonna end. You know how we do, we just go to this black, black hole. And then um, he was thinking, well, then I'll miss my colleagues if my whole career implodes. And so he realized that this deep longing he had was actually sadness. And it was sadness that was actually this emotional bonding agent. And so he switched gears and then the two main characters of Inside Out became sadness and joy. How many of you have seen this movie? I just saw it, but it's so good. Um, and so at the beginning of this movie, Joy draws this circle on the ground and puts sadness in there and says, like, keep all your negative emotions in there, which is like living in America, right? <laughs> Just don't let it out. Leave it there. Pretend like you have it all together. And then um, as things start to unravel with Riley as the movie goes on, Joy realizes that she has only had a partial understanding of the full experience, and so at the end of the movie, she realizes that sadness was this essential element to being able to experience connection and authenticity. And so I'm going to show you just a really small clip of that. Oh, maybe. We'll see. of lament is realizing that our vision and our perspective is just so very limited. We are finite, the world is so broken, and things do not always happen for a reason. Life is really hard, and life entails suffering, 
And we are not here to try to make sense of the broken world, but we are here to acknowledge it. Hope is not this false positivity or denial of the human experience. Um, Brene Brown defined hope as a function of struggle. We develop hope not during the easy or comfortable times, but through adversity and discomfort. And so we're holding all this tension of all that it could be. We're longing for it all to be made new. For the and can redeem it all. Because we believe that God was vulnerable. God is with us and for us in our pain and our suffering. And God was incarnated through Jesus. And God invites us into this risk of love over and over and over again. And inherent in the incarnation is that God actually came to embody this whole human experience, the good and the bad. And God showed us how to embrace it and at the same time transcend the human experience. Because Jesus suffered with those who suffered and wept with those who wept and connected and fulfilled these deep longings of the soul so that people could be made whole. And at the same time, Jesus is always painting this picture of this is what it could be. And also, you're only seeing a small part. There's actually a much bigger story happening than what you can see and comprehend. And it's good for us to remind ourselves that darkness does not define us. It will attend us. It surrounds us in regular intervals. But it does not have the last word. God limits the darkness and has authority over it and is not bound by it. And when we start following and paying attention to this darkness as well as to the light, we will start to actually experience this grace in the midst of the wilderness. Sandra McCracken, a musical artist, said, There's a day coming when the tragic situations of our lives will give way to wholeness. And there's a day coming when we will gather around the table with those that we have loved, with those that we have lost, and we'll recount our lives with vivid memories, like a box of letters gathered and treasured, tracing the goodness of God in all things. In the middle of Lamentations, it says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We need more people with the courage to lament because we need the transformation that lament can bring. It will bring compassion to affect our work. It will help soften our tone of voice. It will allow love to help us slow down so that we can participate as empathetic neighbors in the world around us. Because faith is this deep, deep assurance in the unseen. And hope is actually the acknowledgement of what is here right now and also casting vision of what could be. And we have to realize that fear will always try to limit that perspective, but love will always try to expand it. Even when, and I believe especially when, it hurts. 
So I'm going to read a blessing, um, pray a blessing by Kate Fowler for you. Blessed are you who feel the wound of fresh loss or of the loss, no matter how fresh, that still makes your voice crack all these years later. You who are stuck in the impossibility and frozen in disbelief, how can this be? It wasn't supposed to be this way. And blessed are you fumbling around for answers or truths, trying to make it go down easier, who demand answers or are dissatisfied with the shallow theology and trite platitudes. And blessed are we who instead demand a blessing because we have wrestled with God and are here, wounded and broken and changed. And blessed are we who keep parenting, who keep our marriages and friendships and jobs afloat, who stock the pantry, because what choice do we have but to move forward with a life we did not choose, with a loss we thought we couldn't live without, one small step, one small act of hope at a time. So may we learn to see the possibility that the brokenness of things It's just one way that the light, just ever so faintly sometimes, can be seen.